Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. First thing you might notice when you meet Pendulette is he's tall, 6'7", and he has these tiny round glasses that only accentuate his bigness, and the smile lines on his cheeks reveal a man with a laugh as big as his personality. He's half of the famed magic comedy duo Penn and Teller. But back in the 70s, he was a hippie, a high school dropout from Massachusetts with a fun hobby. But then Penn and his partner Teller, they made it big in San Francisco and later in New York City. And I was very, very happy in New York. He had a successful Broadway show, a beautiful loft. And doing... Stern, Saturday Night Live, and Letterman, at least one of them every week. My next guests have written and uh, starring, currently starring in an off-Broadway show here in New York that is uh, getting terrific reviews, but it also seems to defy description. Please welcome Penn and Teller. Nice to have you here, gentlemen. And I mentioned that the show is getting terrific reviews. It's Mm -hmm. been here in New York how long? We've been playing about three months now. Packed houses every night. Uh, Yeah, packed houses every night, sure. Being at diners at three in the morning with David Bowie telling jokes, you know, going over Lou Reed's house and playing bass. It was a New York life. I mean, it's David Bowie. He's a goddamn sex god. Who hasn't fallen in love with David Bowie? And like, here he is hanging out with people who pull rabbits out of hats. Magic is awesome. I just didn't know you could hang out with Lou Reed and Letterman and Bowie. If so, I would have started doing magic a long time ago. Anyways. Penn Gillette was living a dream. But then an opportunity came that would change his life forever. Penn and Teller's show drew the attention of a booker named Joel Fishman. And Joel called us up and said, at this point we'd done Broadway twice, and said, now it's time to play Vegas. I would be like, Vegas? Lou Reed is not going to be at a diner at 3 a.m. in Vegas. I'm sure Penn was like, wait, This is supposed to be a step up from Broadway. During this time, the 80s, if you're like an intellectual postmodern magician hanging out with the coolest people ever, Vegas was very, very uncool. People who didn't smoke cigars, smoke cigars. People who didn't gamble, gambled. People who didn't see shitty impressionists went to see shitty impressionists. And they went like they were going to a zoo, not like they were going to a show. Penn told Fishman in so many words, they were too good for Vegas. He wasn't about to downgrade his career to perform where entertainers go to die. But the money this booker said they could make was good. Stupid good. He couldn't just say no. So some of my dirtball friends and I, with leather jackets, full Ramones regalia, you know, T-shirts, torn jeans, sneakers, no socks. So we're going to come to Vegas As a goof, perceived Vegas ironically. Penn was going to scope out this grimy desert town. And they were going to do it like Penn thought they were supposed to, as a joke. So they went to the celebrity room. Mr. Gene Kelly. Welcome to the opening night in the celebrity room of the internationally famous 
MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas. A little side note, Vegas casinos change hands as quickly as they deal their cards. By the time Penn arrives, the MGM Grand was now Bally's Hotel Casino. I remember seeing Bally's as a kid, and it was like, wow, the red letter booths, white tablecloths, it felt fancy. The carpet was plush. I remember specifically wanting to take off my shoes. Back then, they wanted you to be so comfortable you didn't want to leave. And Dean Martin was playing that night, famous for his performances with Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. They called their crew the Rat Pack. I don't know who to compare them to nowadays, but like imagine if Brad Pitt, Edris Elba, Javier Bardem, and Bradley Cooper were in a clique. And they sang to you. I mean, it's weird. Right now, right now I'd like to introduce the greatest band in the country. Oh, how I'd like to do that. They're not here tonight, but... Dean was dressed in a tuxedo and crisp white shirt, his puffy cheeks glistening with a sheen of sweat from the hot lights. He looked out at the crowd through Coke bottle glasses, cigarette in one hand, microphone in the other. Penn and his dirtball friends settled in. And we went to see Dean Martin, ironically. Laugh at him, be above him, scoff at him. You know, Dean Martin, he did that song. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. Scoff at Dean Martin? Come on, man. Dean was the soundtrack of the American dream. A suburban house with a white picket fence, a hot casserole dinner on a weeknight. But that was a long time ago. In the early 90s, he was a bygone star. And this was, you could say, the beginning of a shift for Penn. As far as how he viewed Dean Martin and Las Vegas in general. Then Dean Martin came out and kicked my ass harder artistically than I'd ever had my ass kicked. For Penn, Dean Martin was amazing, but not in the way you think. It's not like Dean wowed this punk counterculture kid with his deep repertoire of lounge tunes. No, it was the way that he performed that impressed Penn. Well, he's playing that uncomfortable thing, I don't care, but there's going to be a moment halfway through where he says, now here's a song I care about. No. Dean was making self-deprecating jokes. He was blowing off hecklers at a noisy table. And Dean's attention went there. And they immediately quieted down. To which Dean said, no, Frank's show, you got to be uh, quiet and respectful. You can park cars during my show. Huh? Dead silence. Penn's big old avant-garde heart was pounding. Dean wasn't just on stage. He owned it. I don't know as I've ever laughed harder. Most people there like the show for the music, I think. Penn loved it for its oddities. He was amazed at what Dean could get away with. And I came away from there going, okay, well, you can do good stuff in Vegas too. Who would have thought that? And just like that, Penn was sold on Las Vegas. He and Teller have been performing there for more than 20 years consecutively. They literally have a theater called the Penn and Teller Theater at the Rio. It's not just their names on the marquee, and it's been that way for an insanely long time. I mean, Elton John was here for like 11 years and he didn't get a theater. You could say Penn has Vegas street cred now. He can kind of do whatever he wants. I go into work with slippers, gym shorts, and an unbuttoned work shirt. 
I shuffle in like I'm going into a nursing home. He's the envy of icons he once idolized. When Bob Dylan came to see our show, which he did several times, he was out the backstage door having a cigarette. And uh, I went out, joined him, and Bob said, is that your car? I said, yeah, that's my car. He goes, whoa, you park right there and then go right up these stairs and you're right in your dressing room? I said, uh, yeah. He said, oh, you have got it made. What Penn realized that night with Dean is something all Las Vegans realize after a little time. This isn't a place where performers go to die. It isn't a place where they go to be mocked. It's the place they go to be free. And Las Vegas is in on the joke. There's more to Penn's story, but for right now, the important thing to note is that he fell in love with Vegas. So what is it about this flamboyant, self-aware place that has so loudly defined American culture? That's the question we're asking cultural critics. I think Las Vegas is the ultimate celebration of American capitalism. It's a whole desert city built for recreation, built for pleasure, built for spending your money. And asking casino insiders. It's one thing to run the games, it's another thing to play them. We're asking mob enthusiasts. They went from street hoodlums to millionaires and asking sex workers. What I do isn't just physical labor, it's not just sex, but it's also the emotional labor. That's what this season of Spectacle is all about. Nobody is too good for Vegas. In fact, it needs a closer look. My name is Brent Holmes, and I'll be your host for this season of Spectacle. In the first season, we talked about reality TV with Mariah Smith. We learned how the shows we love to hate should be taken seriously. This time, the spectacle isn't a genre, it's a place. It has had many names over the years. Sin City, City of Lights, Glitter Gulch. It's known all over the world as the epicenter of entertainment, vice, and unbridled capitalism. On this season of Spectacle, we're going to dive deep into all there is to know about the fabulous, incorrigible Las Vegas. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I fell in love with Las Vegas driving east on Interstate 15. When I was eight years old, my mom would load me and my brother and sister into the back of a minivan. She'd drive us down the narrow desert road just in time to see my dad perform in Vegas. I remember those mornings. The air was still cool from the night before, but the sun made us sweat. And once we left LA behind, it was just us, a one-lane road, and the desert. Viva Las Vegas! Viva 
The Joshua trees and yellow-flowered creosote bushes flew by at 70 miles an hour. My brother and sister and I would laugh and wrestle in the back seat. My mom was like, please stop. For the love of God, can you read a book? I knew we were getting close when we saw the Gateway to Death Valley sign and the giant roadside thermometer, which out here in the desert would flash triple-digit temperatures. Thank God for that minivan AC. Almost out of nowhere, the flat desert floor curved up, and as we crested over that hill, a palace emerged from the sand. It felt like I was coming home. The flashing neon lights, the reds and yellows and blues, the cool casino pools, the iconic architecture from around the world remade and repurposed for my pleasure. Of course, at the time, I had no idea what Vegas symbolized for most people. I was in the third grade. Vegas is a vacation, a fantasy world of partying, gambling, and indulgence, a place made famous by Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, The Mob, and Showgirls. What are you going to Vegas for? You going to win? I'm going to dance. You probably get this a lot. This isn't the real Caesar's Palace, is it? Cash. Tons of it. I mean, what do you think we're doing out here in the middle of the desert? It's all this money. Vegas, baby! Vegas! I love so much about it. That's why I eventually moved here. Vegas knows how to market itself, how to punch above its weight, and charge you pay-per-view to see the fight. But under the veneer of silver glitter and peacock feathers, there's a deeper story. As an artist and cultural critic, I uncover and interpret forgotten histories and capture the realities of life here. The constant tug of war between capital and race and sexuality. I've experienced up close and personal how the spectacle of Las Vegas is deeply connected to the story of America. There's an unspoken understanding when you talk about Las Vegas. Getting lucky can mean a million different things depending on how you say it. It conjures images of cash and coins and kisses and... Trust it! Trust it! Trust it! Come on, trust it! Bob! Okay. That's enough. Thank you, ladies. Well, I'll leave it at kisses. Behaviors that we consider immoral or unsophisticated in American life are acceptable, even encouraged in Las Vegas. And that reveals volumes about who we are. I mean, talk about holding up a mirror to society. That's exactly why we're making the leap from reality TV to Las Vegas. We're going to talk to the people who made it the pop culture icon it is today. The lions of entertainment, the filmmakers and celebrities who cemented its image, but also the culture makers who have been overlooked. The people who sacrificed their lives so Vegas could viva. For more than a century, it has taken center stage as the American sideshow. And the films, music, and popular culture that unceasingly reinforce this version of Las Vegas have brought us all coming back for more. And now we're going to take you behind the curtain. I'm Brent Holmes, and you're listening to Spectacle Las Vegas. One time, when I was a kid, Harry Belafonte called the house. He was looking for my dad. You know, Harry, daylight come and me won't go home. Belafonte? Yeah, that guy. 
This was in the days of voicemail machines, so when I picked up the phone, the voicemail was already recording, and 14-year-old me was like... Yeah, uh, yeah, he's not here right now. And Belafonte's like... Oh, well, okay, great. Well, uh, just tell Clint Harry Belafonte called and to call him back. And I was like... Okay, great, bye. And I hung up. And when my dad got in and listened to the message, he just looked at me and said, you didn't ask for a number. I don't have Harry Belafonte's number, Brent. How was I supposed to know my dad didn't have his number? He seemed to know everyone else. Amazing milestone. We'd like to uh, invite to the stage a very special guest that's here in the audience tonight, Las Vegas' beloved entertainer, Mr. Clint Holmes! My mom loves to tell me about the first night I spent in Vegas. I was a baby, swaddled in a drawer in the green room of the Sands Hotel Casino while my dad opened for Bill Cosby in the big room. Apparently, I loved it, slept like a perfect angel. So she did the same thing in every green room we ever stayed in, at the Riviera, the Golden Nugget, Harrah's, you name a drawer, I slept in it. My babysitters were showgirls and I count myself lucky. These women who'd been on their feet all night dancing and performing, heavy jeweled corsets and giant feather fascinators still on. They would walk into my room with a champagne glass in one hand and say, come on, Brent, it's time to get tucked in. They'd pat me on the head, (laughs) watch over me until I drifted off to sleep, and then they'd be gone when I woke up, return to the party downstairs, backstage, a whole world behind all the glamour and gaudy architecture of the casinos. In the back of the house, there were cooks, dressed in aprons, porters in slick black polyester waistcoats. These were the people guests didn't see. And to me, they were just the nice adults who knew my dad. Like the flamboyant lion tamer Siegfried and Roy, the cursing ponytailed satirist George Carlin, and the crass provocateur comedian Joan Rivers. You get completely undressed, you wrap yourself up in saran wrap. I lay down on the dining room table, my husband came home, he said leftovers again. And, oh, the worst! Joan's dressing room was right across from my dad's. So whenever I was there, she would be like, hi, sweetheart, do you want a candy? A few kind words, a pat on the shoulder, and she'd be off. It wasn't until years later that I realized how cool it was. My brother literally danced on Little Richard's piano on the Joan Rivers show, you know? How fucking cool is that? The excitement when I first came here was that I was a star on the strip. That was the excitement. That's Clint Holmes, singer, performer, Las Vegas legend, and my dad. He's a suave, square-jawed man with curly gray hair cut high and tight. When he first came here, he was already a star. His hit single, Playground in My Mind, had become an international sensation in 1972. I close my eyes and soon I find I'm in a playground in my mind where the children laugh. It's this bouncy pop number that sounds a bit like an R&B nursery rhyme. It's about imagining a carefree place where children are playing and having fun. An escape when the world gets too heavy. It was number two on the Hot 100 charts and earned him a gold record. It launched his career. Without it, he wouldn't have become a headliner in Vegas. But now, he's been here for two decades. You know, people in this town... Uh, especially entertainers, look at me like a legend. Some of them look at me as a guru. You know, I get this thing all the time. Man, we come here, you, and it's like, like a masterclass, everything, all that stuff. He's a legend now. But if he'd entered the scene as a biracial performer a few decades earlier, 
he would have had to go through the back door of the casinos, just like the black entertainers before him. And little black kids like me wouldn't be welcome to stay in the hotel rooms. A lot has changed since then. But then again, much is still the same. And that's something we'll get into later in the show. My dad and countless others have found success here. Maybe not always how they imagined they would. So what is it that makes performing here unlike anywhere else in the world? Remember magician and performer Penn Jillette? He has some thoughts on why Vegas is so special. Magic is the unwilling suspension of disbelief. Um, but that doesn't give you license to cheat what reality is. So you must be completely and utterly honest, even though your job is lying. Penn Jillette is now a performer's performer. His work has earned him 11 Emmy nominations and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He and his partner, Teller, make their show feel like you're peeking behind the curtain, like they're letting you in on a showbiz secret. As a magician, part of Penn's act is that he explains how the trick works. So in the end, when you're actually fooled, you're like, wait, what? It feels like magic. Penn and Teller, living in Vegas, live at the Rio. Their faces are on billboards. Hell, their faces are on the side of casino towers. But most importantly, their names are on the marquee on the sign out front. Teller and I went out one day and went into the sign and climbed straight up the pigeon shit covered rail to the top of the sign so we could look out and see our names out over the strip. In Vegas, Penn had something special. It's a place where he can do his magic and comedy the Pendulette way. He could get away with almost anything. So, being the punk magician that he is, Penn wanted to see how far he could take it. How much would Vegas tolerate before a line was drawn? So Penn and Teller put together a bit that was 100% illegal. We did a bit where we wanted to show there was nothing up our sleeves. So we took off our shirts, nothing in our socks, nothing here, nothing here. We took off our pants and we took off our underwear and we had two members of the audience and we showed them under our balls and bent over, said nothing hidden under little Houdini, nothing there. Pan isn't just being dramatic, they were completely naked. Of course, the audience couldn't see everything. There was a sheet stretched across the stage, but those poor volunteers had to see it all. And there were police officers there and they said, you know, when you do this tonight, um, we can arrest you. We said, we know. And I said, uh, if you get a complaint, arrest us. So uh, we did that for a couple months. Police there every night, never arrested. There was nothing he couldn't get away with. No bit was too ridiculous, politically incorrect, too off-color. He even lampoons Jesus Christ in his shows, though not while he's naked. So you could say that Penn found Vegas to be the opposite of what he initially thought. It's not a place of washed-up, phoned-in performers with a cigarette stain on their fingers. It's a place for vital and lawless artists. And I love that humility. I also love the freedom the lack of taste that someone can draw the Excalibur on a cocktail napkin. And if they've got the money, they can build the motherfucker. 
I want a castle. Okay. And that makes it so pleasant and goofy and playful. It's capitalism at its silliest. The town of old that performers like Penn and my dad came into is now a sprawling suburban megacity. It's not just the Strip and a few casinos anymore. And what's right about Las Vegas and what's wrong about it has gotten more complicated. We're a growing desert city that's running out of water. A city with a serious radioactive waste problem. A city that's more susceptible to economic calamity than almost anywhere else in the U.S., which the pandemic made crystal clear. And we're the home of the largest mass shooting in American history, right here on the Strip. The story of Las Vegas is a tale of America. It's full of giants and their triumphs, heroes and their sudden falls. It's a palace where legacies are built and buried. It's the ultimate American city. In the next 11 episodes, we're going to show you a city born in defiance of the rules of proper society and traditional marriage. You get sick and tired of your spouse, you move here for six weeks, we'll let you out of that with no questions asked. A city of mobsters and murderers seeking a better life for themselves. Uh, there were grand juries, there were indictments, there were court hearings. Built on the back of black and brown workers. They could not live in those casinos. They had to live in boarding houses on the west side, and they had to enter the back doors where business boomed. An unheard of amount of money, a ridiculous amount of money. And with all that money, an image to uphold. If it was going to be a pro-Las Vegas story, if it was going to be a nice puff movie like uh, Meet Me in Las Vegas, the city bent over backwards to help them make that production. The actual story of this town is little known, but everyone should know it. It's a window into who we are. On this season of Spectacle, we're going to explore how this glittering city in the desert became the iconic, the unforgettable, the fabulous Las Vegas. And it all, in a way, starts with getting hitched. With this bling, I promise all my love, baby. I promise all my life. And I promise to never leave you at the Heartbreak Hotel. That's next time on Spectacle. Spectacle Las Vegas is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted by yours truly. Executive producer Jonathan Hirsch wrote this episode. It was produced by Navani Otero and Tanner Robbins. Spectacle's senior producer is Joanna Clay. Our associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Original music by Hansdale Sue. And special thanks to Vikram Patel, Shara Morris, Odelia Rubin, Chloe Chobel, and Catherine St. Louis. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Brent Holmes. Y'all come back now, you hear? Spectacle Las Vegas is brought to you from the inside of a slot machine.